Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Siliha and I'm your host for today. I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hey, hey. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Darug and Kurungai people who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Hey, Mitch. How are you? How's it going? I'm good. I feel like I've had a good week. I feel like I've been relaxing a little bit before I'm going back to uni, trying to read a bit. I feel like I've been a very productive reader, you which, have, I, which you I've never really been. You have been. I've actually noticed you've been reading a lot and it's making me very jealous because I really need to get over my reading slump and actually read mm. something. I'm trying. I'm like trying to get back into reading. I'm starting off with some good old epic fantasy fiction in the hopes that that'll like kill this awful streak of mine but yeah i've noticed you reading yeah a lot. i don't know where the motivation is is coming from but i've just been reading book after book yeah i love that for you how about you how are you going i'm going all right i finished my first two weeks uh of pedestrian tv which has been really exciting um i was doing like the nine to five for training purposes which has been so good it was one of those things where as i was working that's the first time in my life that i've ever worked like anything close to a nine to five um, and I was doing it and I was like, damn, I totally get the appeal to this. You just like do your job and then you go home and like your work doesn't go home with you. Like, I don't know. I feel like especially when you work in media, especially with me doing the podcast, like kind of everything is work and the boundaries that blur work and home, you know, are particularly extra blurred for me because it's blurred for kind of everybody in this generation. We don't really ever stop working, but I feel like particularly for me, that's something I experience. And it was nice to like come into the office, work, then go home. But I've now moved into my actual like role, which is the Arvo slash nights writer. So starting from today, this Arvo, I will start my late night shift, which I'm hoping will be fine. Maybe we'll need some coffee. Lots of coffee. Lots of coffee. But it'll be fine. I seem like it's it's just like adjusting to working five days a week, which has been a lot for me, especially considering like working on the podcast and stuff. It has been a lot. I feel like things have just been a lot. Yeah, you're a busy gal. I am a busy gal. But so far, I'm holding on. I'm surviving. So, should be all right. Cool. Anyway, I don't think we really have any follow-up or catch-up to get on with today. So, maybe we'll just, like, dive in. Maybe I'll just introduce our topic and we'll just... Let's do it. Yeah, it's so weird. I feel like we normally spend, like, 15 minutes. Surely we're forgetting something. I know. I'm like, this feels wrong. <laughs> but I'm going to just introduce the topic because I'm pretty sure we don't have any follow-up or catch-up today. Today, we are going to be talking about nostalgia, which sounds like kind of random, but I feel like nothing defines the 2020s better than nostalgia at the moment. Um, If you haven't noticed, we've been having just a lot of like reboots, remakes, a lot of just like bringing back old school things. Retro technology. Yeah, retro aesthetics. Everything is retro right now. Retro from the early 2000s, retro from the 90s, retro from the 80s. Everything from our fashion right now to the movies we're watching to the music that's being made. Like, I feel like everything is just so nostalgic. And that's something that I find incredibly interesting. As somebody who, first of all, fucking loves nostalgia. I am nothing if not the 2010s. But also, like, I just, I don't know. It's really fascinating to me. So we are going to talk about today why nostalgia is so in right now and why we're all so nostalgic and why we just love like nostalgic aesthetics 
Um, and then we're going to maybe dive into it a little bit deeper and talk about the relationship nostalgia has with capitalism. Ooh. Ooh. What could it be? <laughs> we'll find out soon enough. But yeah, let's get into it. It's been a big couple of weeks for early 2000s nostalgia. Just a couple of days ago, or when this episode comes out, maybe a few days ago, uh, the Friends reunion came out. Uh, I didn't watch it because while I was an avid watcher of Friends back in the day, I don't think I care about it as much now. <laughs> like I just, I initially I actually thought it was like a quick reboot. Like I thought that it was an episode where they kind of play the characters again. And then I realized it's actually just the cast hanging out and talking and stuff about like Friends. And I was like, oh, maybe I don't. Wasn't that a cool thing we did that one time yeah. together? And I was like, oh, no hate to people who do, who did really want to watch it. But I was like, I can't. Can't be fucked with this. <laughs> so I haven't seen it, but um, it has been everywhere. It is still trending on Twitter. Everyone's been talking about it. It's There's article after article after. I mean, this is a content mine, I guess, for a lot of companies. But definitely, like, given the Friends reunion just happened and also uh, just recently the Sex in the City reboot was announced and also we just got a Gossip Girl reboot as well that's coming in. And also, Lindsay Lohan just announced that she is coming back to acting in rom-coms. Um, I didn't realize she left, to be honest. But, like, I just saw her in movies. Yeah, she's not really been in anything good. But this is supposed to be, like, her comeback. You know, this is supposed to be, like, a Lindsay Lohan. I mean, she plays... She's going to be in some new Netflix Christmas movie where she is a spoilt hotel heiress, like, Paris Hilton vibes, with a fiance who then like gets amnesia and gets saved by some like sexy stoic lodge owner. So it's very like kind of chaotic. It, even like the the plot of this Netflix movie just seems like very early 2000s because those rom-coms were like quite fucking crazy to be honest. So I'm I'm actually I'm excited for it because I was a big Lindsay Lohan fan back in the day. But yeah, it's just like the early 2000s renaissance is upon us. I mean, Ben Affleck and J-Lo are also, like, back together. And for those of you who aren't super aware about them, I mean, neither was I until very recently. But they were, like, fucking huge in the 2000s. They were, like, Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt when they were a thing. Like, this big celebrity couple that everybody was obsessed with. So, yeah, it's kind of pretty wild how just in this very specific moment of time that we're existing in, a lot of things are happening very quickly and we're seeing this real revival of stuff that was popular in the 90s and the 2000s. And it's kind of just getting me thinking now about like everything that is kind of popular at the moment. Like if we talk about Disney movies, a lot of the most recent Disney movies have been reboots or like live action remakes. We're talking like The Lion King, Jungle Book, Beauty and the Beast, Cinderella, Aladdin, Mulan, like they're not original stories. They're not new. We're just kind of reusing and repurposing old content in different formats. And if you look at the top movies in the box office each year, pretty much all of the top 10 movies are like either a spin-off, a sequel, or a reboot. Very rarely do you see some original intellectual property upon that list. Yeah. And I mean, Mitch and I have kind of talked about this on and off for a while, but I thought we would like kind of get into a really good conversation about it today because- I think it's a very, I know nostalgia has been around for as long as it could have been experienced, but I think we're, we're living in a very specific time at the moment. I think if we think about, you know, what the 2020s are or even like post 2015, like I can't think of a single kind of original like icon moment from these times that isn't already kind of embedded in retro culture. 
Because even if you think about the fashion at the moment that we, we are living in, like right now it's like baggy jeans and like butterfly crop tops and butterfly clips or little hair clips and like chunky dad joggers and tube socks. Like that's very 90s. That's very 90s and early 2000s. Even just the fashion that's in right now is retro. And then if you listen to like Sour by Olivia Rodrigo, which by the way, fucking incredible, iconic, amazing, obsessed. It's so good. But also like it is like angry girl rock of the early 2000s. It is like Avril Lavigne. It's like Paramore. I mean, there's references to like 2000s pop culture iconic moments as well in her music. She talks about like Glee and stuff. And it's just like everything that we're obsessed with right now is nostalgic. Literally everything. Every TV show you're watching right now or the reruns that we're seeing or the remakes or the music. Think of like Thank You Next by Ariana Grande, which was just an ode to Mean Girls. The more you think about it, it's so easy to just sit there and be like, fuck, everything I like is nostalgic. Everything. Yeah, like everything is nostalgic. And I think sort of what you're saying is is sort of interesting to look at it from two perspectives. There, there are the things that are sort of directly nostalgic, like the reboots, the remakes, which are adaptations of things that already yeah, exist. Yeah, they're just like blatant remake of something. But then even the stuff that is original are like centered on nostalgia. They're like nostalgia trips, like Stranger Things, mm, Ready yes. Player One or the music like Sour. Uh, thank you next even though they're original they're building upon the aesthetics of the 80s 90s early 2000s yes stranger things is actually a really interesting one i think because i think stranger things is one of the only netflix originals that really took off because we watch netflix originals but they don't really have cult followings you know and i mean there were a couple that did um, but I think Stranger Things was, like, quite special in that regard. I think just everybody fucking loves Stranger Things, including me. Like, I binged it when it came out, and I'm obsessed. I think it's great. But part of the reason it became as popular as it is is purely because it was set in, like, the 80s. And, you know, with all the, like, Dungeons & Dragons references. So, like, it's a reference to a very special time. And maybe that's kind of a key way to mm-hmm. get into why we love nostalgia. Because with Stranger Things, at least when I watch it, if I just reflect on my personal experience, I didn't even grow up in the 80s. I'm born in 1998. Like, I barely grew up in the 90s. But something that was reflected for me in Stranger Things, and it's probably a huge reason why I continue to mostly consume child's content. I love, like, animated TV shows where the main characters are, like, 14. Like, that's my favorite genre. But I think the reason is because... I miss maybe the friendships and like the type of life that I would have been living at that age, even if I'm not from the 80s. Like one of the best parts of at least season one of Stranger Things is the friendship between the four boys. Like, I mean, the show is driven by their friendship because, I mean, I guess this isn't really a spoiler because by now, surely everyone has fucking seen Stranger Things. But like, if I you, have not. You have. I know. I've tried to watch it with Mitch and he just doesn't want to watch it with me. And I feel like it's, you would like it. Okay. You would like it. It's good. <laughs> but anyway, I'm like the first season kind of centers around like them looking for their friend that's lost and like it is this platonic love between each other that is kind of the main I guess driving force of the plot but the friendships you have when you're like 12 are like the closest friendships you will ever have in life and I think that that is a focus of a lot of media that we consume this is like a side note but I remember reading a quote by the director of Jennifer's Body Mitch have you seen Jennifer's Body? No. No, I watched Jennifer's Body when I was like, you know, maybe 12 or something. And it was, I mean, it was a bit taboo back in the day because Megan Fox is hot and she kisses a girl and like she gets possessed by a demon. So, you know, it was like 
Satan, Satan shit and also lesbianism, which is quite taboo. But I watched it and really loved it as a kid. And maybe I didn't fully understand why. And then as like, just like quite recently, like a year ago, I just happened to stumble across an old interview um, of the director. And like that movie, the point of it was to explore the friendship between teenage girls because the friendships you experience when you're like a, a teenage or preteen girl is so intense. Like the friendships you have then are so intense and you never experience that again. And I think that's true for me, not to like shit on my friendships. <laughs> I love all of you, but I was obsessed with my friends when I was in that 12 to 15 age. Like I used to spend all day at school with my friends and then I would talk to them on the phone on the train home. Like we would say bye at the station and then I would call them and then I would talk to them till like 8 p.m. Then I would eat something and then we would text each other until we fell asleep. Literally, like, constantly talking to my friends, obsessed, in love with each other. And I definitely think, like, that, like, strength of a relationship is, like, a nostalgic thing. It's just not something you even have the capacity for as an adult. Like, even if I did have friends that I'm that obsessed with at the moment, like, I fucking work. I don't have the time to talk to you all day, every day. I don't even talk to Mitch when I'm working. Like, I don't Mm. have time. Have you seen Stand By Me, that classic child friendship movie? from I think the 80s because that's essentially the end of the movie that you never have friendships like you do when you're 14 and I think another element of that sort of 80s nostalgia especially with Stranger Things being set in that period with kids in that period is that kids was in a way more free then they could just be let outside yeah. and, and roam the world you which you don't fucking, really see you would nowadays. just bike to your friend's house with no concept of stranger danger because <laughs> like even even when I was a kid like we would just play with all the random kids on our street and like my mum would just let us and it was like a normal thing because like the idea was because there were so many of you playing together we were all kind of watching each other Um, and just like yeah the freedom that you had as a kid back then and the way we socialised was completely different because we didn't have things like social media not that I think social media is a bad thing but the way that our relationships were mediated was different we didn't really have a middleman you had to go and see your friends I was able to talk on the phone with my friends, but like that was it because I wasn't texting my friends until I was in my teens. So if we're going to talk about like when you're like eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, like I was either with them physically or we were on the like landline telephone, (laughs) you know? And yeah, I think you're right. Just the freedom with them biking each other's houses and spending all day together playing Dungeons and Dragons without a care in the world. It's like a very specific experience that we will not have anymore. And we may get back to this later, but especially with this relationship with smartphones and social media and, and contemporary media is the fact that parents can also now surveil their children with these this new technology, mm. which also allows for a different type of freedom for kids in this world and in you know growing up in the 2020s. Yeah. So there's also like an element of the past being freer, being less unstable. Yeah. And also like, I think that's actually, I know you said we're going to come to this later, but I'm just going to jump on it now. Let's I thought, do it. I thought that was a really good point um, of like parents surveilling you because I didn't actually think about that pre to this episode. And that is so, so true because when I watch things like Stranger Things, Part of the part of the fun of even the storyline is like these kids get up to all kinds of crazy fucking shenanigans where they're like, you know, fighting demons from other planets and stuff. And then they just go home <laughs> and they just like have dinner with their family and like it's normal and their parents have no idea that they're doing these things. And that is like the premise of a lot of, you know, young adult or like child fiction. It's like normal kids, normal everyday kids just like me and you go out and save the world and then come home for dinner. And that is fascinating because you're right. At the point that we exist in now with, I mean, my mom used to have me on Snapchat and I used to have my Snapchat location on so that my mom could see where I was. <laughs> That's pretty wild now that I think about it because, I mean, the fact that like back in the day, kids could just go out and their parents wouldn't know their whereabouts is pretty wild. My mom always knows where me or my siblings are. 
Well, I think it's sort of fascinating that, you know, I'm an only child, so I'm a bit disconnected from necessarily what the kids growing up nowadays, what their lives look like. But seeing your younger sister who is, you know, growing up in primary school in this new digitized world and seeing the way that even her like simple homework gets marked and then sent to your mother through like these new apps, it's like a different type of surveillance. And I think, I mean, it it is just surveillance and it's not necessarily good or bad, but I think you can make an argument either way but it's it's a different time and i can see how we would be yearning for media that doesn't represent this way of life that represents something freer something Mm. just more childlike in a way yeah something more i think also innocent because Mm. like you said with surveillance i mean for those just to give you guys a background my sister is in u1 um and how they do homework at the moment is she does her homework and then my mum takes a photo of it and uploads it to an app or sends it to the teacher and then the teacher will mark it that way. So she doesn't, we don't physically hand in the homework, um, which I find interesting because when I was in primary school, I never did homework. I used to lie to my mum about doing homework all the time. Like, oh yeah, I handed it in. I never handed it in. My little sister can't do that because my mum, she needs my mum to use technology to hand her homework in, which means my mum always knows whether or not things have gotten done. That was not the case when I was in school. I never did shit to me. I was a very bad student in like primary school. <laughs> I never handed in homework. I never did. You were did. being a kid. I was being a kid. Like kids aren't supposed to be doing this much work. I mean, I could have a whole other conversation about that. But the point is, yeah, like just like the shenanigans of just being able to do random shit and face no consequences. And like just, yeah, like the innocence and freedom that comes with being a child that doesn't face consequences. Because because now in such an interconnected world where everybody knows what you're doing all the time and you're so much easier to manage in terms of like parenting, people can see what you're doing. You can't just do shit. There's so there's consequences to everything. And even just from like a digital perspective, even now, like I'm sure we all said dumb shit as kids, but the, sh- the dumb shit I was saying is not online. And now with like twitter and stuff like that you know somebody can be 20 now and have posted some really dumb shit when they were like 15 on twitter and it's there like you actually can't escape from your like anything which i could do Mm. yeah it's not just that parents now have the capacity to surveil you in new and pervasive ways but it's also that facebook has the ability to surveil you google does amazon does which gives everything you say a weight that it didn't before yes. because it doesn't have the capacity to disappear. You've lost the ability to forget. Everything is permanent. Mm. And actually forgetting is quite an important thing because it allows you to grow. Yes. But I think this may sound like it's going a bit off topic, but I think this is actually quite fundamental to why nostalgia nowadays is becoming so pervasive and the, the, almost like the dominant aesthetic yeah. In our contemporary culture. I think, like, 2020s are defined by nostalgia. Like, 2000s were maybe defined by low-rise jeans and very terrible fashion moments. But, like, the 2020s are absolutely defined by nostalgia. And I think that is a huge reason why. I think, I mean, I'm just going to take this moment to maybe... Let's transition to, like, an actual more structured discussion on why. But I think with nostalgia, a huge part of it is just the fact that, like, we yearn for a time where we didn't have the problems that we do now. And it's not to say that problems never existed, but we are living in unprecedented times. And I don't just say that because of a pandemic. I mean, even like five years ago when the, oh, kind of crazy to think the pandemic didn't exist five years ago, right? Mm. But even like, yeah, before that, we live in an unprecedented time when it comes to, like we just talked about with consequences, with social media, but also just like surveillance, also just like, feeling so weighed down 
by the world. I feel like we're just such an unoptimistic generation. We're like the first generation who will likely live less prosperous lives than, than our parents. Like this, it's been centuries since that has been yeah. the case. And we live in a post 9-11 world where, I mean, surveillance increased. Uh, we live in a post-2008 global financial crisis world, which has just made the economy is so precarious. And now we live in a post-pandemic world, which is further problematized mm. and turned everything into an ongoing, unimaginable crisis. And we're also living like in, in a mass extinction as well at the moment. I think, and <laughs> Mitch, oh the face God. he makes right now. And I'm like, I'm not fucking kidding. You know, we literally are scientifically living through a mass extinction at I the know, moment it's, it's because of climate terrifying. change. Yeah, like there's actually, it's really easy to repress this shit and to like, I think also just like Gen Z and kind of the youngest millennials, like we're really good at just being like, lol, you know, joking about these really serious issues that are actually completely crippling my will to live. But that's like actually just our everyday. Um, And that's what I mean by lack of optimism. Like I think we're probably the first generation in a long time to not feel like we have a future. You know, even with like my parents, my mom is very young, by the way, my mom is 41. Or maybe she's 42, but she's around that age. Like, my mom's super young. She's almost a millennial, actually. And even when she was growing up in the 90s, like, there was still this excitement for the future. Mm. There was still an excitement of where technology can take us. And I can't wait to get married and have kids and buy a house and do all these things that adults do. Um, And then now there's, like, kind of our generation where we're probably never going to work in a job that isn't precarious. We're never going to find the financial stability that we have always yearned for uh we're probably never gonna buy a house i mean the planet's supposed to die in like what another nine years (laughs) like it's just everything is so fucking shit to be honest to say it quite simply and i mean especially with financial stability i think is a big a big one because even if i believed that like we were going to save the planet like that what about the economy (laughs) and like what about the fact that the housing market keeps rising and there's so many of us that are unemployed because there's not enough jobs like I'm lucky enough I mean I just got my nine to five and I mean Mitch was saying something before about how like back in the day the nine to five was seen as like quite a soulless Mm -hmm. job it was the symbol of sort of the middle class meaningless you know that that you're you're a man in a suit that brings his briefcase from work to come to his wife and two and a half kids and his beautiful mm. nuclear family home and that was like we saw that as stagnation that was the saddest just bourgeois nothingness that you could imagine yeah and now i'm like fuck yeah, yeah nine to five people would fucking kill to have a nine to five like that stability like it's, it's just crazy how that has shifted from being the soul-sucking worst possible thing you could imagine to now holy shit like i would literally kill someone if i could just have a job that would guarantee me like an income yeah. I don't have to, like, be scared that I'm not going to get a job next week, that I'm not going to get a gig, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Like, it's just so sad that that has become the dream. Yeah. I was going to say, like, what was seen as, like, God, I'd never want to be in that situation, you know, 30 years ago is now, like, what I would kill to be in. Because that, because at the moment, I think we're a generation seeking stability over everything else. We're a generation seeking a life that we feel can actually, like, we can actually be supported. We're also scared of constantly either being fired or, like, being two steps away from being homeless. Or even if you had, even if you're, like, fucking bourgeois as fuck and you've got your nine to five and you've got everything and you've got, even if you've got, like, your mortgage or whatever, now you have to worry about the planet's death. (laughs) Like, there's no shortage of things to worry about. I mean, I think, yeah, like, I feel like that is kind of the key crux of why 
we as individuals love nostalgia because I just want to feel like I felt when I was 12 and I didn't really have a huge concept of the world's struggles and I was still innocent. And even like with technolo- when technology was exciting and not dystopic, because I think like technology is definitely a big one. I mean, if we talk about, you know, the retro aesthetics and why we like old school technology, I mean, like Polaroids or even like Stranger Things is very like old school aesthetics. Like part of the reason for loving a society that didn't really have technology, despite how fucking useful technology is and how much it's changed our lives for the better, is because we do actually understand the ways that we're being surveilled and the way it's being utilized against us and the dystopic nature of a lot of the technology that we use. We understand that there are good and bads of it. And so we enjoy the good parts of it in our lives. But when then we want to think about nostalgic shit, we, we don't think about technology at all because we want to envision a life where we weren't like capitalism's bitch. Yeah, and I mean, going back to that image of the the sad middle-class nine-to-five worker, the thing is that is when he does come home to his wife and two and a half kids- work is finished like the work has been done like that that is a facet of his life but it is relatively contained but now it's you come home from your three jobs working you know 40 50 60 hour weeks or potentially only working five hours and struggling to eat and pay rent now you also have to answer emails even on your on your off days like the pervasiveness of technology it's not that technology is bad it's not that technology has made our lives worse i would say mostly the opposite but it's that technology plus capitalism equals a life where you're constantly working yeah because now that like technology allows work to come home with you there is an expectation for your 24 7 contactability i mean even i struggle with that a lot especially as somebody in the journalism field because it's literally my job to know what's going on all the time like it's my job to kind of be on top of the recent news and how do we access news we don't get newspapers we scroll through twitter and facebook and instagram and like especially when like I'm at a point where I'm pre-news. A lot of the time, I'm the one telling the news. So I'm not reading news articles all the time. I'm trying to get shit from the source. And a lot of the news that we get to from the source comes from like someone's random tweet or like mm. someone's confession on Twitter that, that that this company actually did this thing to them. And then, you know, then an article will come out about that. But like, I'm here trying to get to the sources, which means I've spent fucking a ridiculous amount of time just scrolling, just looking for stories. And it's one of those things where like, even though I work in an office and my job is mostly self-contained but I have to be up to date with the news in between my two days of work so that I'm ready to come in which means I'm still like technically working all the time but it's like even when you're on your phone that should be leisure time but you're still in that mindset of that what could be a news story you're Mm, always looking for a news story exactly it's like and even this podcast like is this a job Are, are we working right now is this a hobby is this leisure do is this something we do for fun it could be all of the above because labor seeps into to everything well, everything we do is labor these days. And I think that's like a really key point of that conversation as well, because now that things like Facebook and Twitter and stuff, like they don't create content. They just provide a platform for us to create content. And because creating content is a means of leisure, but that means of leisure requires labor because creating content is also labor. Labor and leisure are now the same thing which means you're always working even when you're not working even when you're doing something for fun you're still using the same labor that you would be to work and that just kind of I feel like leads to this constant feeling of just like exhausted and that's why like nostalgia is so hard hitting right now because yeah I mean thinking about a time where I could just ride my bike down to my best friend's house and we could just play games in their basement and not even like touch a phone or answer an email it's so appealing 
But even if we move out of the conversation, because like I think it's pretty obvious why we as individuals love nostalgia. Like I think it makes a lot of sense as such a disillusioned group of people. It makes sense that we would yearn for a time where we didn't have the problems that we currently have. Even if we didn't grow up in that time. It's just like looking back at something and thinking, wow, I wish I experienced that or could still experience that. Because right now, all I know is this kind of stressed suffering and I don't want to deal with that. And they look like they're having fun. It's definitely a grass is greener on the other side scenario. But I think nostalgia and the popularity of nostalgia right now is not just because we as individuals love nostalgia. Let's also talk about like why fucking giant corporations love nostalgia. I googled just the word nostalgia and prep for this just to see what comes up. And you would be fucking shocked the amount of articles that came up that said nostalgia is great for productivity. Mm. How are they commodifying nostalgia like this? The whole point, the reason we're feeling nostalgic is to escape everything being commodified because we're nostalgic for a time when our whole lives weren't commodified. And then this article is like, how to use nostalgia to make your employees more productive. And I was like, what the fuck? We've come full circle. (sighs) But yeah, like, I mean, corporations and capitalism definitely have a stake in nostalgia. And I think like that is... Maybe even a bigger reason for why nostalgia is popular right now than our personal preference, because it is deeper than that. Like it's, I mean, this is like a positive feedback loop where we really like nostalgia. Companies recognize that. Companies profit off of nostalgia, use it in their marketing and their movies and their whatever. We consume it because we're so nostalgic, and it just—it's an ongoing loop. But let's talk about nostalgia and capitalism. I mean, listening to this, it may sound like we're very nostalgic like i mean we're talking about the 80s as this time of freedom etc that that nostalgia has some basis but in a way if you look at the the nostalgic representations that the culture industry that capitalism has produced so much of it is maybe not quite what the past actually was and it seems that everything is sort of selling us this idea that we can go back is that we've gone too far maybe social media has gone too far at certain aspects of technology has gone too far. And if we just log off, if we just undo what we've done, we can go back to a purer, simpler time. I do want to quickly jump on what you said about like, was it all really that good back then? Because you're right. Like we have nostalgia for the like nice parts of the 80s and the 90s, but also we seem to sometimes fail to recognize that actually there were also some pretty fucking shit things about the past and like we are progressing in some ways like in a lot of social ways uh in terms of things like lgbt rights and women's rights those things didn't exist in past times a really good example is how much we love 50s diner aesthetic right we love like the fucking milkshake dates we kind of we love that aesthetic with like the nice dresses and the kitchens and blah 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 but like also black people didn't have rights (laughs) in the 50s like do i want to go back to like Pre-civil rights, yeah. Yeah, of course not. Like, we we recognise that as individuals. And I do want to say that, like, when we talk about all these wonderful, amazing elements of nostalgia, part of the reason we have such positive images of that is because we love to actually forget the fucking oppression that happened at those times. And you know what? There's a reason for that. Yeah, because if it's true that things were simpler in, like, the 90s and the 80s, then then there's this idea that we can go back. But the problem is, is that shows like Stranger Things are so popular because they present a sanitized version of the past. So we can't help but idealize a time before the demands of smartphones and an unstable economy. But the issue is, is that they're whitewashed representations and, and typically heteronormative, if you want to look at shows like Friends and Stranger Things even. You know, it's just, it's not how the past actually was. It's ahistorical. 
And the thing is, is that nostalgia is being weaponized everywhere. Even in politics, if you look at Donald Trump's campaign, what was his slogan? It was make America great again. 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 Like, since when was this country so great? What are we going back to? What are we going... What period is he talking about? Is he talking about the 80s, the 90s, the 40s, the 50s? It's for anyone to imagine, but it's not based in any historical fact. Yeah, I mean, it's like very obviously pandering to our individual ideas of nostalgia because everyone's going to have it. Not that we agree with Trump, obviously, but everyone's going to have a different idea of what they think makes their country great. Obviously, with Trump, we know he's probably talking about 50s-ish era where like white supremacy was just fucking... It's already permeating everywhere, but at a time where people of colour, and particularly black people, had even less rights, we can safely assume he's referring to that. I think he's talking about the 80s and the 90s, sort of Reagan era, the, mm. the, the origins of neoliberalism. Yeah. But the thing about the 80s was that the Cold War was still going on. So it's really the 90s in which the, the deregulated markets of neoliberalism, the apparently prosperous times, really emerged. And how interesting is that considering that we're, we're also nostalgic for the 90s for completely different reasons. And mm. we've just like very conveniently forgotten. Like it's kind of jarring to realise that Trump is probably nostalgic for similar times that we're nostalgic for. And that's obviously a red flag and a good reminder of like everything is perspective and we're probably sanitising a lot of uh, things and just forgetting the realities of situations. Mm. But yeah, like just when I was saying like why, you know, we're so nostalgic for certain times and stuff, it's because like a lot of this nostalgia is created you know a lot of this nostalgia is created because nostalgia is profitable as i was saying not just in articles where employers are like how can we use our employees nostalgia to make them more productive nostalgia is profitable from like the perspective of creating movies for example you know one of the reasons for like all these fucking repetitive disney films that constantly reboot the same stories and the same ideas and the same characters again and again and again which are enjoyable let's yeah. like let's not Dismiss that. Yeah, the, I mean, the Jungle Book live action was fucking amazing. I thought it was amazing. The Lion King one, maybe not. But Jungle Book one was really good. But the reason that, like, they do this is because instead of taking the risk of creating new stories, they're just going to repurpose old things that they know will do well because it's pandering to our nostalgia. They know that we're a bunch of depressed losers who are just so desperately want to be 12 again and we're just going to keep watching all of their Mulans and Aladdins and whatever and they can just keep selling, they keep giving us the same product in different packaging and like we will keep buying it. Exactly. I mean, why would Disney make 12 original films with new characters and new settings when they could just make four trilogies of the same characters or set in the same universe that will further promote a specific line of toys? I mean, the commodification of films in the past few decades have, has changed so substantially. Nowadays, films are sort of ads for original music or toys. I mean, Star Wars makes far more money from its collectibles and its merchandise than it does from the actual films. The, the film is just an advertisement for all this other external periphery commodities. That's actually, I remember the first time you said that to me and it totally, completely changed the way I consume movies. Like Mitch really offhandedly said to me once, like, oh yeah, like movies are just ads for like stuff. Mm. I think it actually was in, in reference to Star Wars. I think we were talking about Star Wars when we were having that conversation. And I was just like, holy shit. You are so right. The only reason some movies, especially in the superhero realm. Mm, especially Disney stuff. Especially Disney superhero realm, like Marvel, Star Wars. It's all owned by Disney. Like the only reason these films get made and why a lot of them get made but have poor plot lines is because it's not about 
the actual movie. They don't need to have a great storyline. We're going to watch it anyway. But like that movie exists and these characters exist purely so they can sell us the fucking toys. Mm. Like I remember um, when I, when it was one of the newer Star Wars films and there was like little penguin things. The, the pogs or something? Yeah. And like I was, oh, I remember because like I'd had that conversation with Mitch and then I was watching it and I was like, oh my God. Yeah, they're just to sell them. They're just so that we get toys for them. Exactly. That's all they... It blew my mind. It actually blew my mind. I mean, surely Disney made more money off of Let It Go, the song, than they actually did Frozen or all the Elsa backpacks I see in toys. And you know what? I remember somebody saying, like, why did Elsa get so many fucking outfit changes in Frozen 2? And then I thought about what you said and I was like, oh, my God, I bet it so they can sell different outfits and clothes for her. Yeah. And it was just like, I'm seeing it. Like, I can't unsee it now that you've said this to me. Every time I watch, like, kind of Disney, like, big corporate movies, all I can think is, like, hmm, now they're going to market it this way. Now they're going to have this toy. Like, even with things like Toy Story and why they just can't let it fucking die. They just refuse to let Toy Story die, even though it's an incredible... The first couple of movies are amazing and they could have ended it there. But with every new movie and new toy they put in Toy Story, they can sell you that toy. But moving on from that, I think it's important not to criticize the people that do find enjoyment in these things. Because I find enjoyment in a lot of nostalgic media. Like, I have fun with these things. But I think it's important to ask why we enjoy it so much. And I think it's because it adds some stability and familiarity in a world that is so unstable and is increasingly becoming infamiliar as crises are shaping it around us. Oh, yeah. I listen to the same, like, three songs and watch the same four movies every day for the last, like, 10 years. I refuse to consume new content because all I do is listen to, like, the same albums I did when I was 12 because I like the way it makes me feel thinking about being that age again. And so that's why, like, I'm definitely, like, one of the people that does that, especially more than probably you, Mitch. I feel like Mitch is pretty into, like, new experimental stuff. And I refuse. I am a fucking boomer internally and I just refuse to outgrow my (laughs) initial interest. But like, yeah, I mean, this is definitely like one of those things where everybody is like that. And this is not like a moral thing. There's no moral ideas onto why we like nostalgia. We do for very obvious and understandable reasons. But yeah, it's definitely like kind of jarring to think about it and then realize that like actually places like, you know, big big places like Disney, um, and large corporations really have a stake in our nostalgia. And, you know, like, they really, they have a stake in it because it lets them cut corners. Our nostalgia lets them cut corners. It's not our fault. And we're not saying don't be nostalgic. We're just, like, noticing and observing how, like, capitalism has jumped on and commodified our nostalgia. Because, like, to just bring everything back to capitalism, because everything is capitalism and capitalism is everything. True. True. Every, capitalism is the root of all our problems. Um, But, like, capitalism, it's, look, it's pretty well known for, like, anti-capitalists that capitalism stifles creativity. I know a lot of like neoliberal fucking pro-capitalist losers are just like, oh yeah, but like capitalism breeds innovation. Bitch, explain to me how we have five fucking Disney remakes in the last two years then. <laughs> like capitalism does not breed innovation. What it does, it stifles creativity because why make new things and waste resources and profits on taking risks in creativity when you can just sell the same shit again and again? I feel like I've even heard fucking Jordan Peterson like concede <laughs> on that point that uh, that capitalism makes art a commodity and that's like not a good thing. Yeah, because it just means we're never going to do anything experimental or like because art and risk are like inherently intertwined. Mm, especially with movies, which are, you know, multi-million dollar productions, sometimes hundreds of millions. 
Yeah, the, a lot of fucking money goes, and you also have to pay all your cast. Like, especially mm-hmm. got all these top billing actors. Like, movies cost a lot of money to make, and these days they rather like make a movie that's not that great. Because you know what, a lot of Marvel movies are not that great. Like, they're they're great spectacles, storyline maybe not so much. But like, the reason they are the way they are is because they don't want to take the risk of making something actually new, because profits are more important than risks and creativity and art. So I think the strange position we found ourselves in is a sort of double bind. It's sort of that the present isn't good. And clearly the the path that we've gone down has been increasingly precarious and unstable. Late stage capitalism things. So then what's the solution? Oh, but then it's going back to the past. It's about dismantling everything we've done. But then also the past apparently wasn't <laughs> that good either. So what do we do? And that can be a sort of debilitating idea to have but i think that just reaffirms what we constantly talk about on this podcast that it's not about continuing what we have it's not about going back it's about trying to construct a progressive politics that takes all of it into consideration to try and make the future better and anew ourselves yeah exactly you know i think i mean especially as anti-capitalist i think a lot of the criticism anti-capitalism gets is well if you don't want to go backwards and you don't want to go forwards where the fuck are you going what's your like what's your new world look like you know, what's your answer? And it's like, we don't have to know everything. Sometimes we just need to dive headfirst into a future that isn't what we've been envisioning all this time. We live in a time where creativity is stifled and we're constantly being pushed to regress. And like, maybe we really need to jump onto some creativity and value it a bit more. And it's that creativity that's going to get us out of the spine, really, because we have to be. We have to be creative right now to solve the world's problems. So yeah, like, I guess this is one of those conversations where like, Maybe we just started off talking about nostalgia, but actually the root of this conversation is about creativity and about new things and about risk-taking. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with nostalgia, but maybe we should, maybe we should take some risks. Maybe we should move forward in a way that we... Like, not in a linear way. Does that make sense? Yes. Cool. Well, thanks for listening. Before we get into the sort of the plugs and the conclusion... I just have a book recommendation for further reading if you guys thought this subject was interesting. And I was definitely uh, inspired by this book during this conversation. And it is called The Circle of the Snake, uh, Nostalgia and Utopia in the Age of Big Tech, written by Grafton Tanner. So it's published by Zero Books. And if, if you found this interesting, you will definitely really enjoy that book. So that's my little recommendation. And on that note, I think it's a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you, our lovely, lovely listeners. Specifically, we'd like to thank Pia, Beck, Rachel, Sarah, Liz, Bell, and Katie. So thank you so, so much. If you thought our discussion today was interesting or thought-provoking or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Sliha. If signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official. And give me a follow if you like today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film, books, and music. And I also, my most recent post is also sort of relevant to what we've been talking about. So suss it out. Mm, nice plug. Very mysterious. Mm. Uh, a little clickbait in there. There you go. <laughs> uh, 
also, if you guys have any comments or suggestions you want to add to the discussion anyway, you can DM me on Instagram or you can email us at here's a thing though podcast at gmail.com and please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info. You can also join our Facebook group and chat with us on the episode thread. Uh, but if you're going to join the Facebook group, make sure you answer the questions or else I will not accept your request. Sorry. No exceptions. <laughs> and of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there. Cool. Okay, well, bye. Bye.